Welcome to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to people who want to speak more as a way to build their income and grow their business. Well, welcome everyone to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. My name is Jane Atkinson. I'm the author of the Wealthy Speaker 2.0 and the Epic Keynote. The topic of today's podcast, ooh, you're going to like this one, is winning the million dollar training contract. Our guest expert today is Greg Schenkel. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks, Jane. Good to be with you. Well, let me just give everybody a little bit of background on you and then we're going to dive right in. Greg Schenkel is the president of Frontline Leadership Systems in the United States and Canada. He and his team specialize in developing frontline supervisors, managers, and team leaders in how to impact productivity, quality, and safety while motivating and engaging their employees. Greg is the author or co-author of five books, including What Great Supervisors Know, Employees Not Doing What You Expect, and Fusion or Fizzle, How Leaders Leverage Training to Ignite Results. Over the last few years, Greg has landed three, count them three, million dollar training contracts and several hundred thousand plus contracts. And he's going to share some secrets to help our wealthy speakers. So Greg, before we dive into these contracts, and I just think that this is going to be a really, really well listened to, <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are very, very interested in this topic, but let's just give them a Reader's Digest version of kind of where you came from starting in this industry to where you are now. So folks will have a bit of a basis to start from. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, unlike most people who get into the speaking and training business, my dad had actually started this company. So that's probably unusual for most people. Mm-hmm. So he had he had taken, after a 30-plus year career at General Motors, he actually had started this business in 1987. Meanwhile, from from high school, I went into um, I went into university, and I actually worked at General Motors as well for a number of years. And I went to their their school in Michigan. So when I came out, I'd run a small consulting practice for one of the business schools, and then um, my father, who by that time was thinking about his second retirement project, uh, said, "Hey, if if you want to come into the business, I'll I'll consider turning it over to you, or you can buy it buy me out." So it was, uh, I guess, 25 years ago now that I purchased the business from him in 1992. And all the way along, our core business has always been training frontline supervisors. And in man- and mostly in manufacturing companies, there's obviously some exceptions to that. And we used to do a lot more things, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about choosing a lane and specializing. Uh, so then, since then, basically, I've uh, I've pursued you know typical small, mid-sized contracts, and then probably in the last five years, things started to change, and we used, we started to go after some larger ones and win them. So many of our listeners are you know one-person operations, and you yourself have been a one-person operation. So tell us how somebody without a team can really hunt down these big contracts. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, people should still know, even, even now when we're doing actually uh, at least two big contracts simultaneously, plus a whole bunch of smaller and mid-sized projects, it is still really just me and I have uh, my wife does the accounting and the bookkeeping and I have a team of subcontractors that I use and I have a virtual assistant 
who herself also has an assistant. And so it's really this kind of small band of merry men and women who, you know, were basically going out and making it happen. But the the very first thing people probably need to know and, and can relate to is when you look at the, the different bullet points in, in uh, training programs, you know, whether you're re- reading my course description or someone else's, mostly the bullet points, even though we've, we fixate on them and we want them to sound sexy and, hmm. and uh, important, the reality is most training programs, if you looked at my leadership program or others, are going to be essentially the same. Mm-hmm. So um, when, what the differentiation I think is going to be, whether you're a one-person operation or you have a few staff members or subcontractors, is it's all around the audience targeting and the service differentiation. But when I say service differentiation, I'm not talking about that you just happen to be more service-oriented and responsive. I'm talking about everything that you do in that training relationship to basically deliver value to the customer. So I've, Jane, you know a little bit of my background. I used to run a much higher overhead operation, and I had employees. Um, And the problem with the training and and consulting business and even the speaking business is it has its ups and downs. Even if you're awesome, there's going to be recessions. There's going to be contracts that come and go. Even my very first contract, uh, you know, it lasted for about four years, but then there's a change at the top and all of a sudden now it's a licensing relationship. The billings are much lower. So you almost have to realize that not to kind of gear up your business uh, at whatever level you might get when you win your first contract. and I even admitted to the very first big contract that we won. I said, look, you're talking to someone who is literally in his basement office right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a one only person with a few, uh, obviously, subcontractors. And she said, we love your approach and we love what we see on your website. So that doesn't matter to us. So I, I love that. And I'm wondering for people who, how, how much would you say mindset and just the ability to think bigger was a part of you getting and going for that very first one? Well, before that, even if I go back before that first one, when we landed what before then was a really big contract, like uh, into the six figures, I remember at the time I thought, I don't even think we should quote on this. And this is even when I had like the overhead. Uh, I just like, I thought, you know, we can't go after this because we were used to going after, you know, ten thousand, twenty-five thousand dollar deals, and this was the first one that was worth more than six figures. And I remember we actually debated it in the office, a few of us, and we said, you know, should we bid on it? Should we not bid on it? Oh, why, why don't we just give it a shot? And then we actually won it. And then what that taught me is that um, it didn't really matter how large your firm was, as long as you could relate to the to the client and you had a solution that they would that they would buy into. And so when the when the next big one came around, it's kind of like the lures were in the water from a mm-hmm. fishing standpoint. Right. And when when it actually bit and it really just bit because of a web search, um I was kind of like, okay, this is cool. But even that first inquiry, Jane, I didn't know if it was just to train 25 people or as it turned out to train 1200 people. Wow. Right? So you know, I just thought it was just, hey, we've got a plant, a production facility, and we need you to come and do some supervisor training. So would you say that um, it might be helpful not to get too caught up in when you're 
putting together the paperwork, not to get too caught up in, well, how are we going to do every single piece of this? You know, the the first million dollar one that you went after, did you really, were you really able to visualize exactly how all of the details were going to transpire? Or did you just say, here are the outcomes we're going for? You know, that's a good question. I think I did panic a little bit at first because I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what happens when the dog that chases the Greyhound bus actually catches it, <laughs> right? But, okay, so then then, then we went through, I actually did a lot of work at that point to try, like I even had a, I'm going to say a part-time project manager that I said, could you lead me through a session to figure out all the steps? And now, as it turns out, that was way overkill. Like I brought the team together, we did a whole lot of planning on it. Um, and, you know, it probably worked well that time because it helped me kind of walk my way through it. But after that, I realized that was really more than what was needed. I should have taken the approach you just suggested, which is what needs to get done. And when you and you, when you really look at the components of it, there's a bunch of training workshops that have to get delivered. Mm-hmm. And then there's, those, there's some obviously some logistics and support things that have to go around it. Now, that approach has changed as we went for other projects in, in that our solution got expanded. But on that very first one, I probably didn't have to panic as much as I did right. because really the client was co-creating the solution with me. Right. And I think that uh, overthinking things and getting in our own way is probably a tendency that many of us have when we're looking at something that's kind of beyond the scope of what we've ever done before. So if you set a goal to, okay, okay, I'm going to do two million, 2 million next year. You know, don't try to get caught up in how it happens. Your brain doesn't actually know. And I think neuroscience can support the fact that, you know, your, your brain will just take it in and start working on the problem, on solving the problem. So, okay, we're going to go on to um, scaling up. So how do you scale up for these larger projects without increasing your overhead? So I think the the first thing to realize is, and especially I know a number of your listeners, like me, belong to, in my case, I'm a member of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, or CAPS. Obviously, a lot of your listeners are members of NSA or one of the other global affiliates. Right. So keep in mind that you already have a network out there of people who are quite competent in the delivery of training and, and, and services like that. Um, I also had to wrestle in my own mind with, did I need people who had worked a lot in manufacturing or did they have to be good presenters? And uh, so, so I guess the first answer to your question is, there are people out there who are very competent, who may have excess capacity, that is that they're not sold out, mm-hmm. right? They're, right. Not, they're not doing 120 inventory. days a year, right. right? So they have inventory and they may be willing to, I'm going to say wholesale some of that time to you. Uh, now, I, I believe, even though I think you can probably get away with p- paying your subcontractors less, I believe in paying mine more. Because mm-hmm. in my mind, I'm, I'm prepared to pay someone what I would be willing to do that work for them for. Right. So it's, a, it's still got to be less than the selling price, obviously, to the end customer. Um, so there are people out there, you know them, and I also realized that they actually didn't need to have a ton of industry experience. It helped in my case that they've been in a factory, they understand the language that goes on there, they know the uh, the lack of sophistication in the learners, um, but otherwise I needed them to present as awesomely as I think I present, 
And so that, cause I, the one thing I don't want to do with any subcontracted team is I don't want to have to deal with clients who aren't happy, right? So uh, the, the service delivery has to be rock solid, whether it's me delivering it or someone else. Right. And just know that I think a lot of us need to view this like a movie production. A movie doesn't have any employees. A movie hires, a, there's a producer who basically hires a director. They have a casting person who hires the actors. They hire all the crew, right? And then at the end of that movie, after that project is done, all those people go on their way. Right. And the other thing I'd, I'd like to say is that I like subcontractors who already have other sources of income as opposed to relying on me as their sole source of income because that's a lot of pressure. Right. I don't want to have to worry about feeding their families. I want us basically to all come together, uh, eat the kill, and then <laughs> you know, move on. Right? Okay, that was graphic. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let me uh, circle back for a second because when I first met you, that was your your dilemma was yeah. that you felt responsible for feeding all these families. And I would say it was taking a toll on your health. It was taking a toll on everything. And you you weren't as profitable. Can we talk about why you're getting these contracts now and the idea of picking a lane and how that helped you get there? For sure. And of course, I have to go back to when you and I really first uh, connected, which uh, just to give everyone a little bit of background. So I bought the business in 92. I had expanded it. We opened up seven offices. I had, uh, I think, up to 30 staff. My monthly break even was like 150 grand a month. I had <laughs> to bring in just to break even, not even to make a profit. Wow. Um, I borrowed way too much money to expand the business. Um we got sidetracked into, you know, doing quality systems consulting and a bunch of other sidelines, which at the time looked very seductive and profitable, but in the end really had kind of a, a faddish curve to them. So, you know, from about 2000 to 2004, um, the business was really in a limp along mode. I borrowed too much money. The bank wasn't happy with the results. So, I mean, we're like in this mode where I'm now closing all these offices and firing all these people. And I mean, it's just horrendous. My health was crappy. Mm. Stress level was high. Right. And at and, the time you were delivering lots of topics. Oh, yeah. We were like doing sales, sales training, customer service, yeah. supervisor, managers, business owners, um, tiddlywink competition. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it seemed like we would do anything if somebody wanted. In fact, our joke at the time, Jane, was um, if somebody asked us if we did something, we said, that's our specialty. And, and I mean, it, it was a joke. That's right? funny. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. You, then I met you. And then, then we you. met and then you picked a lane. Yeah. I picked the lane of, at that time it was leadership. Like a little and, bit broader. And, and this is, this is where I think, you know, I know there's probably some people listening who still haven't, who still bristle a little bit at this lane thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's partly because we want to hedge our bets and be diversified. So I went with leadership, but really even then the seeds of our, of our focus had already been planted in supervisors mm -hmm. and, and, and frontline leaders, not executive development, not really management training, although do we do some of that? And I think the more I focused on the niche, because still for a while there, I was taking on sales training projects and 
Um, so, so really what you helped me understand and it, and it took me honestly years to really start to focus on it. And if you think about it, that was like mid 2000, so Mm -hmm. 2004, five, six, I only really started to make really good profits from that strategy after about 2011 or 12. And you had gone down even further to manufacturing, which I think made you the specialist, the true specialist. And don't you think that that's part of the reason why you're getting these contracts? There is no doubt in my mind that when we became, and I don't think we're quite a category of one, but there's not too many people that play in our space. So when other people are bidding against us, and it's not that we're we're often single sourced into these deals, but sometimes there are competitors. Like on the first deal we did, there were seven of us uh, who got shortlisted. Um, but I, I won the, the deal essentially the day that I presented because we had to go through this RFP process, but mm-hmm. then I was called in to do kind of a presentation. I got a call at the airport on my way out from that deal saying, we want to do the job with you, but we know that we don't know you. You're not as big as Covey and, and some right. of the other things we were looking at, but you're the only one who focuses on supervisors and manufacturing. So um, absolutely – Right now, through the Google search, through our social media strategies, uh, through our existing client base, everything says we are the place to go for supervisory training Mm. in manufacturing. Okay. So this is something I was just uh, working on a client with this morning. Let's talk about pricing. So on multi-date deals, the inclination might be to discount. And the bigger the deal, the more heavily the discount. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, that that is absolutely the incorrect strategy. But I know that we all think that way, right? Because we're used to saying, hey, if I buy three widgets, what if I bought 300 widgets? And and widgets are different, though, because if you're going to make a product – in a factory, you have tooling, you have supplies that you're buying. Um, so technically, when you buy them in higher volume, you would expect to get a lower price point. Right. When you're buying a service, the problem is that the bigger the service contract, the more cost there is to administer it. So if I'm going to do, on some of these large contracts, they work out to potentially hundreds of delivery days. Right. So those hundreds of delivery days have to be done by real human beings and those people have to go on the road and we have to organize the logistics around it. Um, there is just a lot of work to deliver more service to people. Right. And I think that, um, and I didn't, I didn't dream this up. I think I either got it from Alan Weiss, uh, author of Million Dollar Consulting, or I got it through another source, said that actually when you're selling uh, higher volume service contracts, you have to charge more, not less. Wow. And, and by the way, clients will pay more. Wow. And I, I just love that thinking and that philosophy. Why would we go backwards? Um, you know, there, there's more, like you said, there's more work piled on. And I just, I just love that philosophy. And, and, um, so, so let's talk about how you determine the minimum and maximum pricing for your training. Yeah. Just, just before I jump into that, the one thing I would say is that, 
um, the big corporations that will sign, and and I, by the way, I'm just now starting to get in what I would call the Fortune 100 to Fortune 50 size companies, like okay. the, the really big ones, right? Mm-hmm. But a few of these deals were done with companies where they might have uh, $5 billion in sales, or it would still is a big number for you and I, but I mean, uh, what I'd say is, though, if they see too low a price, it sets off alarm bells. Right, so perception I, is yeah, off. So, so I'm not... I know in, in some, with some of my clients, because I have such good in-depth relationships, I know that some of the training companies that they're doing business with are charging probably even two or three times as much as what I'm charging. And so that tells me that there's, you know, depending on what the audience is and what level there is, um, they're willing to pay more if they perceive the value from it. Um, so because uh, I think, you know, you, you obviously your listener base, because uh, I'm one of the people who listens regularly to your podcast, is it's going to be a mix of keynoters, trainers, consultants, coaches, all sorts of folks. Right. But but just know that, you know, we always hear about these big keynoting fees of $25,000 uh, a speech or something or forty or 400000 I guess, if you're a celebrity. But just know that some companies are paying twenty five, thirty five thousand for a day of training as well. Right. So, but let's go. Let's go through your question there, which was, you know, how do you deli- So the best advice that I had ever gotten was from a fellow at the time, a fellow Caps member, uh, Stuart Morley, and I was talking through this first big contract with him. And what he said is, he asked me a couple of really interesting questions. He said, first of all. Greg, what is the lowest, the absolute lowest fee you would consider delivering what you think the scope of work is with this client? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, at the time, I thought, okay, based on what I'm, you know, what I think there is and maybe the minimum number of sessions to be delivered, I think really it's going to be $250,000 to $300,000. That's that's kind of what I thought would be the minimum on this one first big contract. And he said, well, Greg, what would 10 times that amount be? And I said, well, uh, $3 million. And he, and he said, first of all, that blew my mind right yeah, there. And yeah. then he said, do you know that some clients want to spend $3 million and not 300000 And I went, holy crap. Yeah, okay, okay, you're, I'm following you. Yeah. Now, by the way, I never had the guts to go to $3 million, But then he said, what would it take if there was no limit on the service that you would provide, the budget that's involved, what would it take to deliver on what the client really needs to solve the problem that you're helping them solve? Because he said, if you think about it that way, you'd realize that you don't have to be cheap to get the business or even put in what you think is the lowest possible cost. You actually have to put together a package with options potentially so that if they want like tons of one-on-one coaching and all sorts of follow-up and, you know, why wouldn't that maybe because because he said to me he said you know somebody's going to come in there and probably bid ten million dollars on this thing, mm-hmm. um, and and you're not going to win it if you come in at five hundred thousand. So wow. Any, so I and I think you hit on the big ding 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 is that when you are solving the pain, you know when you position as the expert and you're solving the pain of the client, th- there's not a price on that. And and for and I think a lot of us think. Well, what if the client finds out that I charge X for this? And they they likely will never know all of the fees that are going on in the background. Um, and, and I just want to also bring up something that um, 
a lot of the reason why you wouldn't go for the amount that you think you should go for is going to be based in fear. Oh, yeah. And uh, somebody very smart, one of my old bosses, Peter Legg, who was, by the way, a multimillionaire, had this line that he gave me, and I've locked in, most decisions based in fear are wrong. Yep. And I've stuck with that. And so really ask yourself. And so for the people who are thinking about raising their fee uh, on on the keynote, and just remember, we are talking about uh, large training contracts here. I believe very much in fee integrity when it comes to, say, offering up a keynote fee. If one person calls, uh, then somebody else should be able to call the next day and get quoted the exact same fee. So mm-hmm. let's not get that confused with what we're talking about, okay? Right. I just also wanted to say that in my case where I'm training supervisors, it's not like it's a, uh, I'm going to say, it's not, there's, not a, there's not a billion dollar problem I'm solving for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember in the one case, that very first contract, I knew that the CEO in their annual report, it was a publicly traded company, that the CEO had said that he wanted to see, and I think it was about $100 million a year in continuous improvement savings. Now, you might say, what does supervisory training have to do with you know, 100 million in continuous improvement savings? But there is a factor. I, I know that supervisors can, can help that. So what I said is that really what we're trying to do here is, I said, this is the $25,000 challenge. Mm-hmm. I said, you need every one of your supervisors who we're going to train to come up with $25,000 of savings to your bottom line. And I think that what we're going to do is going to help make that happen. And I was the only person who tied in what the CEO's goals were to what the training we were going to do. And here's the neat thing, because I think a lot of your listeners are going to say, well, how does my wellness program or my, you know, my, my stress management or resilience, how does that tie into the bottom line? There's a connection because it's the people in the organization who make those results happen. So don't be afraid to even loosely connect yourself with their business objectives in order, because I think sometimes we think, well, I'm not going on and saving them $50 million, so I can't charge them $3 million. No, but you, you're going to make, hopefully what you do does make an impact on their business. Right, right. And yeah. if you are a wellness coach, you know, knowing what the goals of the organization are overall still might be a good piece of your research on the front end and then mm-hmm. connecting that back to dollars saved on healthcare and things like yeah, that. Attend- and da- days attendance, off. you're yeah, right, all yeah. those things. Yeah. Good. Okay, so um, you have three different pricing models. So let's talk about those. Right. So uh, another thing that Stuart Morley had helped me with uh, in his thinking is, or in my thinking, was that he said, I want you to think of three different ways that you could uh, price this thing to your client. And, and he said, you can think of any of the three different ways you want. Now, for training, I typically, uh, and these are the ones that we talked about, he and I, um, you could price it per day, which is mostly how I was pricing before this. You could price it per location, so per production facility. You could price it per person. Now, he said, you know, and and this is something I think that people should know, is that there's probably an upper limit if you start quoting a daily training fee, even though I told you just a minute ago that some clients are paying $25,000 a day probably for training. Um, But they don't like it sometimes when they see that fee. So what I decided to do, and it helped with this contract because they were going to have me and, and ultimately a team of people 
actually on the first contract I did deliver all the training myself and I had others doing other work. But the, um, the, the fact is that I was going to be doing work in all these different facilities and for budgeting, it helped them if I priced it per person. So there, get this in the very first million dollar plus contract, there was no number in there bigger than $650 because that was the price per person based on a certain group size. Wow. And that was the most I'd ever charged when you rolled up kind of everything that they were going to get. Right. But, but then they had had me quote on other work after that. And I said, okay, the training fee is $4,000 plus the per person participant fee plus air travel and, you know, books and shipping. And that's when they actually started to get worried about price. Right. So I would say that when we itemize, it almost makes them think about the dollars more because they see a bigger number in the contract. Right. So what would you have done differently? Just added on a certain amount per person and left it at that? No. Well, the very first contract, I priced it per person and right. there was no price problem. Okay. It, it was only in a subsequent project where I said, you know, we're going to do it on a daily rate right, and, right. and a materials rate, which is how I had priced everything before that. But since then, I almost always price on a per person rate. Okay. That's good to know. So... Let's talk about building in accountability, impact measuring, performance support, and how you put that into your training solution. Right. So, and this is a more of a recent thing that I've done in the last few years and even accelerating even more as we're speaking and have some bigger plans for this. Most people know that for competitive advantage, you want to differentiate yourself uh, from others in the market. So there's there's certainly plenty, probably thousands, maybe even 100,000 other people who will do leadership training. Um, so I knew that in order for us to be different and to create the results in terms of behavior change, we were going to have to do a bunch of things. So, and, and I also know that for some of our big clients, when they're making bigger spending decisions, they have to do some sort of cost-benefit analysis or at least see something measurable that they can bring up in a management meeting as they talk about how the project is, is uh, rolling out. So most people, I think, do some sort of pre-surveying uh, we do pre-surveying, we do post-surveying, and these are using, by the way, very b basic tools like SurveyMonkey, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we will do um, we will do in-class polling, so we use clicker technology in the class to do uh, polling that generates spreadsheets and data. Um, we do a post-survey to ask about impact. Uh, in our case, we have an application journaling system, so that every participant who goes through our training has to document. And that goes into a database, what they've applied from our training and what the impact was, including any financial impact, if there is any. Now, in case people are going, oh, my God, you know, that must be a huge database. No, <laughs> it is it is a web form, just like a contact form on the database. All it does is in the back end, it goes into a spreadsheet. So this is not some, you know, $100,000 coding project. Um, and so we do the application journaling system, which anybody could copy if they want to see it, Jane. Uh, the website I have is called applicationjournal.com, but that just points to a page on my website. Okay. Um, then we do, um, we've done post, post training coaching. Um, and, uh, then the latest thing is performance support. So in any training venture, no matter how awesome that training day is, um, even with the application journals, there's still a problem with getting long-term behavior change in any training. So what we do is now we have a video library. We're developing an app for uh, on-demand learning. But again, just in case people are thinking, 
oh my God, you know, again, that's going to cost me, you know, 25, 50, 100,000. No, it could be a $10,000 project. It could even just be a few thousand dollars. I just think sometimes we freak out and think that, you know, well, you have to be doing Greg's volume of business to do this. No, you don't. So anyway, I just think packaging all of that together, what that does is it allows you to charge more per person Mm -hmm. so that your effective charge out rate for all of your time, in my case, I look at average selling price per day, right, is going to be, and now it's 60% higher than it ever was before because we're including all this stuff. So they can't even compare the price to Joe Smith, who is going to come in and quote them, you know, 5,000 for a training day. They cannot compare it because it includes all these other bells services. Bells and whistles, yep. And by the way, sometimes I still quote it without the bells and whistles mm-hmm. um, because not everyone wants the high-end solution. So do you give, uh, do you kind of just come in with one idea or do you give multiple options for people? I've really struggled with this because I know a common practice is to have a good, Three. better, best, right. Right, good, better, best solution. Um, lately though, like I've tried that a couple of times. I, I just generally go in and say, based on the this situation, the what, I'll, what I'll do is in the sales process, I will say, how important is it for you to have uh, a bi-weekly report for management on how the project is rolling out? How important is it to have access to continuous learning and, and performance support? And if they go, I'm really just looking for a training day, then I just don't bother proposing it. Right. So what it did is it shrunk the length of the proposal down and really, it's just my recommendation as an expert, and, and most of the time they're buying that. Sometimes they're going to be a little bit of tweaking after that. Okay, so I I kind of I'm on the same philosophy as you. If you if you have the right package, just propose it. You know, to kind of put all these other things together. Sometimes I think maybe the client gets confused. Okay, so I want to circle back to say 20 years ago. Did you ever imagine? that you would be doing this type of business at these volumes and these dollar amounts? No way. I mean, (laughs) honestly, I thought just doing a million in sales would be an accomplishment. And the other thing I wanted to mention to folks, and this is a little bit maybe more advanced, but I know some some people have uh, maybe sizable practices as well. Um, Every business goes through different levels of plateau, I think, Mm -hmm. almost, and reinvention. Yes. And... My mindset also used to be, oh my gosh, if I had a a $1 million, $3 million, $5 million business, I mean, that's going to be so busy. I'm going to have no life and and also my my expenses are going to be so high and I'm not really going to make as much money. Right. Then I started to actually get into, and I know you and I have talked about this, a systems mindset. Mm -hmm. First of all, I still believe a lot of us go in as if it's like a blank page and it's just you know, trust me, here's my credentials, I'm going to be a good trainer, here's my bullet points. And I realized that clients really like it if you can show them a system solution. And I got this through, you know, some some sessions I went to with Alan Weiss and reading his books. Uh, And then I also um, read a book called Built to Sell, Mm -hmm. which is by a guy named John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. And what it did is it said, you can have a service business you could even sell. So now, Jane, I'm thinking, honestly, in my my mind, I'm thinking this could be a $15 million business. This could be a $100 million business. Because there are training companies out there that do those kind of volumes. And it doesn't mean you become this bland, uh, you know, bullet points for everything type company. You could have a very focused niche 
and potentially build a $10 million plus business and not have to be a uh, chain to it. And so, by the way, this, this is blowing my mind still. So I'm just getting my head around it, but now I can see it's possible. Wow. I am so excited for you. What do you think gave you the confidence to go for that first one? The first one was dumb luck, I think. <laughs> well, probably, no, probably the first one was they had told me that they really liked the solution. And so I thought, okay, you know what? I might not win this. It's going to be a heck of an experience just trying to win it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really went out of my way to win it. Like I visited their plant locations and, and they said, if you did the amount of work you did right. without the project, um, we can only imagine what you're prepared to do if we give you the project. But I will say that after that, I didn't quite put that same level of sales effort in because I learned that you didn't have to. Right. Uh, these days, based on Google search and your social media presence and what you're writing in your blogs and newsletters, people can get a feel for both your philosophy and your ability to execute. So I think that all the things we worry about, super number of testimonials and all this, sometimes that's not what you need. Mm, you just good. have to have a solution and show that you're an expert in your field. And, um, and so I just learned to go with it. And I will say that obviously when you've done one, at first I thought, I'm not sure if there'll be another one. Then when the second one came, I thought, <laughs> it's something here. And now I think, honestly, I think they're going to come a lot more rapidly because uh, I think now you I, have know, your system. I know how to do it. Yeah, you have your and, system. And, and by the way, the other thing I want to mention, because a lot of us feel like if I don't do it, I can't charge as much for someone else to do it. I will say that it's possible to charge a high fee and have subcontractors delivering. I've seen some of my subcontractors deliver. They do as good or better job than I do. And I can charge them out at rates I couldn't use to charge for myself. So let's let's all escape this mindset that says I have like, to do it all, and and I have to charge less for other people. Not right. true. I think it comes in handy not being a super control freak, and um, you know not having that fear that oh well what if what if you know what if they like the subcontract tractor better than me or whatever i think that that's uh you're you're going at this very very boldly and i think you do indeed have a company with these systems that you can sell in the end and so many of us are just trading our own time for money that that's not possible so i love where you are headed is there anything else that we should be telling people before we go and then i want to let them know where to connect with you if they'd like to okay so, well, I guess the last thing is just picking, picking up on that last point, which is that I used to, th- and, and keep in mind that after my business really almost failed, essentially, in, in the 2004 and five, I honestly pursued for many years after that the model that many people do, right, which is going to stay small, keep my costs low, I'm going to go out and deliver work at as, as, as high a fee as I can, um, save up as much money as possible, and then, you know, retire. Right mm-hmm. at some point, based on the savings. Right, and and I think that now what I realize is that I really love putting together these larger solutions, and the actual going on the road and delivering a hundred days a year starts to get a bit tiring. Sure, and that and that now that I realize that the these larger jobs they don't necessarily care whether I'm delivering or not has been very freeing mm. because now I could potentially put together a team of. I don't know, 10 or 15 subcontractors who are very happy to, uh, to have lots of days mm. and, and, and pursue their dream. So I think that if you realize that your expertise, if it can be converted into a system, 
these things are all evolutionary, Jane. I've been in the business 25 years. So if people are sitting there going, I'm six months in, how do I do this? I'm right. saying, well, maybe you need to work it a little longer first <laughs> and, then, and, and, and systematize it on something that generates results. Right. So, you know, if people want to connect with me, keep in mind, I don't have anything that I'm trying to sell or market. The only thing, I guess, is if people think that they have a big job, I, I certainly would welcome a phone call to either steer them through it or, you know, share some tips with them. Um, I'm obviously interested in doing business for manufacturing companies and supervisory training, so I'm happy to collaborate and partner on those types of projects. People can reach me at the new website, and this is the other thing I changed, right? I used to have, used to go under Unique Training and Development, which is a business I bought from my dad, uh, and it still exists as an entity. But the other thing is I started a new company called Frontline Leadership Systems because that's really what we're Perfect. doing. So I think, I think some of us, we get cute with our naming and we get cute with our system and we don't realize that there's a company out there that wants to buy a solution and um, I, don't think most, I don't think most of us can brand something cute to get people to understand what we deliver. So we do Frontline Leadership Systems and uh, so they can get me at frontlineleadership.com and it's... Uh, it's G Schinkel, and uh, you'll see the show notes perhaps of the correct spelling. But even if you just go to frontlineleadership.com, connect with me through there. Uh, also, Facebook, obviously, Frontline Leadership, and uh, the YouTube channel is Front Frontline Leadership. So all of that stuff, uh, by all means, copy what you see because that's how <laughs> I learned how to do it. Right. Well, Greg, this has been an amazing, uh, I'm hoping, use of our listeners' time. And if anything, let's say that you're not even thinking about these exact types of things. If anything, it just helps you to think bigger and think more about what's possible in your business without necessarily knowing how it all needs to come down. I want to say on behalf of our Wealthy Speaker listeners, thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly hectic schedule to be with us and uh, with that we'll say we'll see you soon wealthy speakers bye for now everyone thanks for listening to the wealthy speakers show please visit speakerlauncher.com for your free wealthy speaker audit and visit speakerlauncher.com forward slash podcast for show notes and many more resources to help you catapult your speaking business see you soon wealthy speakers